Welcome to Volt Foss with Anna Taylor and Eric Summerlot, a podcast where we dive deep into the questions we often forget to ask and search for the answers. Why does our society neglect its most vulnerable? Why do we place such importance on man-made concepts? And what can we do to chart a course to a brighter future? It's time to break free from the traditional and create a new world of love and acceptance along the way. Hey guys, just as kind of a precursor to episode 5 on mental health, I wanted to give a quick content warning regarding some of the severity of the topics that we discuss in this episode. So if you have any um, triggers as far as mentions of self-harm or depression or anything related to mental health or illness, this would be a good episode for you to just go ahead and skip over. We'd love to have you, but we care more about your mental well-being than listening to us talk for an hour. So thank you for listening, but just wanted to make everybody aware that this is a pretty heavy episode. Thanks. Alright guys, welcome back to episode five wow of volt foss i'm anna taylor i'm here with my co-host mr eric hi guys and today we are going to be discussing the topic of mental health and kind of the origins of how mental health awareness really came about and what we've done as a country to try to i guess make it a little bit easier which hasn't gone over very well and kind of just our experiences and and touch on kind of how hard it's been under the COVID-19 crisis to stay afloat. So. Yep. Spoiler alert. Uh, we have not done much and it's not been good as no. a society. No, so. it hasn't. So per usual, we're going to um, talk a little shit about it <laughs> and uh, and get right into it and I guess try to come up with our little ideas of what we can do differently. So anyway, um, for starters, I just kind of wanted to dive into sort of the history within the U.S. of basically the deinstitutionalization movement. Back in the mid-19th century, most people who were dubbed mentally ill or insane as it would have been back then, and just to interrupt again in this episode, there might be some language that's used in describing individuals with mental health issues that obviously is not language we would use now to refer to these people as, but at the time, this was legally the appropriate terms for this. So just to throw that in there, uh, we'll try our best to be cognizant, obviously, of the appropriate language to use. But so in the mid, Mid-19th century, basically people were put into what were called insane asylums. If you had even the smallest issue, your family could basically take you and just kind of lock you away because they didn't want to deal with it. And so a good thing that kind of came of the deinstitutionalization movement was the fact that people were treated in a sense with a bit more individualized respect and, and you couldn't just lock up your family member because you didn't want to deal with them. So basically, deinstitutionalization is a government policy that moved mental health patients 
out-of-state-run asylums and move them into federally funded community mental health centers. And so this is a good thing on the surface, but most of the state-run hospitals closed, which reduced the availability of beds long-term. So now you have patient care facilities that are lacking because we're supposed to be opening up these community-based mental health initiatives. And of course, with the state of the US government, basically always it takes a lot longer than what it should have taken. So fast forward to more recently, and in 2010, there were only 14 beds available for psychiatric treatment per every 100,000 people, which is not as much help as we need to have available. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So really, this all kind of came about in 1954 with Thorazine being approved by the FDA. And this was a good thing because it really allowed... I mean, obviously there's issues with these psychiatric drugs, but it, at minimum, it kind of allowed these individuals to be treated more as people. It replaced using electroshock therapy and mm -hmm. lobotomies, which is essentially torture. Yep. I mean, for those who don't know, lobotomy is literally going in and cutting up your brain, yep. your yep. frontal lobe, to make you act however they want you yep. to act which is just absolutely horrifying. So in 1955, there was a record number of patients in mental hospitals reaching about 559,000. They suffered from schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, brain diseases like dementia or damage from trauma or drug addiction. And that, that even included people with developmental disabilities and autism. So really these patients were not expected to get better they were just kind of locked away there was a commission created the joint commission on mental illness and health to evaluate basically the entire situation of what was going on with the mental health crisis so in 1961 they came out and said basically um yeah this is a huge issue there are a lot of mentally ill people here um, so nearly 20% of the population they found suffers from some sort of mental illness. So in 1963, John F. Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Center's Construction Act into law. And this would provide federal funding to create community-based mental health facilities. The idea was to take these individuals out of the asylums and put them into what would hopefully be a more short-term treatment facility that would reintegrate them back into society so that they could be individual people and no longer just be wardens of the state mm -hmm. and, and live a productive life as much as possible. So these facilities were designed to provide prevention, early treatment, and ongoing care, rather than just be reactionary to whatever the issue was. So the goal was to build between 1,500 and 2,500 centers and I do believe that this was well intended, but I don't, honestly, I think Kennedy was a bit naive in believing that this would just be done overnight. Because the problem here is that they, they really just expected this to take off and they didn't think about the extensive needs of these folks and how long it would take to move them around. And, and really the kind of uprooting that you're doing to these people who are used to 
the same thing. And of course, the other problem is construction always takes a lot longer than you think. Oh, for sure. And just a mild interjection there. Uh, you're also in this process trying to fight a cultural designation for folks who are suffering from mental health mm -hmm. issues where up till now you know as we've discussed earlier in america in specific but worldwide the general way of dealing with mental health issues up to this point was ostracization locking them away mm -hmm. and forgetting about them essentially right and so you're not only do you have the difficulties of trying to build a brand new infrastructure not only do you have the difficulties of the direct dis disturbance of life for these folks, mm -hmm. you're also having to fight against a culture which has not just normalized this, but idealized this as the way that we deal with folks that are in mental health yeah, situations. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely true. So unfortunately, we all know what happened to... President Kennedy. So in 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Social Security Amendments Act. So this kind of reorganized the way that this was all supposed to be done because now it created Medicaid to fund the health care for low-income families, but it didn't pay for mental facility treatment. So basically, all of a sudden, these people couldn't really afford to get treatment, much like is still the case now. Um, so these states kind of took the patients and put them in nursing homes and hospitals rather than having them in these short-term care, short care facilities because they would get federal funding by putting them in a hospital by mm -hmm. saying, hey, something's wrong with them, whereas they weren't gonna get that funding if they had them in treatment facilities. So, uh, Ronald Reagan, in 1967. Ew. Yeah. Fuck Ronald Reagan. Yeah. But I will say he was somewhat right in this regard, which was to limit a family's right to commit what was considered a mentally ill person against their will. Which, pros and cons. I mean, like we just said, there's a whole culture of, of fighting this, but at the same time, people would argue that if someone is a danger to themselves or others, they might need to be influenced mm. or mandatory uh, taken into care. So that again, kind of skewed the public's view of what was going on. So in 1977, only 650 community health centers had been built. So all that time had passed and only half of what was proposed actually came about. But at the same time, all of these state hospitals were closing because they were expecting these community health facilities to open. So these 650 facilities served 1.9 million patients. That's about 3,000 people per facility, which is just absolutely asinine. I mean, how do you give people the mental health attention that they need mm -hmm. with 3,000 patients per one? Um, so they were designed more so to help people with less severe disorders as they were considered. So state hospitals closed and these centers became overwhelmed because 
you can say that they were created for lesser illnesses, but where's everybody else going to go? That's really the only option at this point. So basically it kind of became overrun with people who had very serious challenges and issues that they just weren't prepared to handle. So then fast forward to 1981 with President Ronald Reagan, and he basically redid the budget like he did with everything else. But this shifted the funding back to the state rather than federally, but he did it through grants. So for those who don't know that grants are really used for public housing and food banks and economic development, um, not for mental health care facilities. So when he did this, it no longer just provided that net for these facilities, what it did was actually made them have to compete with food banks and low-income housing. And unfortunately, I mean, obviously in our society, housing and food is going to take priority over mental health counseling, even though, I mean, they're all essential. That's basically what happened. So now, basically all of the funding was taken away from the facilities that they did have. So even if you fast forward to now, the Affordable Care Act kind of helped because it did allow for some extent of mental health uh, help through the programs that it, it had. But unfortunately, mental health is still outrageously expensive to get treatment and care for. And most, a lot of insurances, if they pay for anything at all, it's dismal. It's treated mm-hmm. as a, a premium service for people to have mm-hmm. as if for some reason your brain is any different than, you know, an arm or leg injury, but for some reason that's how we treat it. So as a result, about 3.5 million severely mentally ill people do not receive any psychiatric treatment at all. And about 200,000 of those individuals suffer from schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, and are homeless which makes up about a third of the total homeless population. So basically what we've done on this roller coaster is kick people out of the asylums and and under the guise of giving them individual rights, which is great, but then we didn't create a safety net for them. We kicked them out, but we didn't give them anywhere to go, which has led to an increase in mental health issues. And then now all these people are homeless or in jail. Mm So instead, you took them out of the asylums and put them in for-profit jails to basically keep the prison pipeline going. So it's really just kind of a gross history. Yeah. <laughs> there were some things along the way that they like tried to do better, but of course our politicians are either murdered or terrible. So. Yeah. Well, and the, the whole time you're reading this, I'm just kind of thinking like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yes. You know, there's a lot of grand schemes here that were not thought through all the way. Mm -hmm. You know, going all the way back to the starts of the uh, deinstitutionalization movement and not creating the requisite transfer, transferring health facilities, Mm -hmm. not creating the requisite community health facilities, you know, Ignoring the portions of societal effects on mental health, uh, 
not providing social workers. So typical to America, seeing a problem far too late, mm -hmm. and then once we've identified the problem, spend a whole bunch of money not really fixing the problem and patting everybody on the back afterwards. Launch a, a research into the problem yeah. and then not actually come up with yeah. anything. All right. So even now, there were 11.4 million people documented who experienced serious mental illness in 2018. Of that number, 64% actually received treatment. So the thing is, is that what I wanted to get through with this is that if you are experiencing a mental illness, you're not alone. There are a lot of people who also are experiencing the same, not the same exact problems, but there are more people out there who understand what you're going through than you would think. And honestly, I think I would say these numbers are even low because it's not that they went through and asked every single person in the in the US if they had any, you know, mental illness issues because of course they didn't. So I just think that this topic is so even now it's still so stigmatized and hard sure. to talk about. Sure. And I think that that's just something that we really need to change because there there are so many of us who are affected by this every single day. You know, we talk about COVID and how it's affecting us. Right now, black people are being intensely objectified to mm -hmm. PTSD and trauma, watching black people get murdered every single day. All of these are things that the state is imposing on us, really, mm -hmm. but not giving us the tools to actually handle it well. Absolutely. And... Uh just beyond, even beyond not giving us the tools to doing to do anything about it, but robbing us of mm -hmm. the tools that humans naturally create. Yeah. You know, uh, strong, tightly knit community, safeguards in place to ensure that folks can leave abusive situations mm -hmm. before their mental health is for, further degraded. You know, you mentioned COVID-19 and this is a, a worldwide trauma that mm -hmm. we're going through together, not just the pictures of bodies and trucks, not just the separation from your normal schedules, also just the vast amount of isolation that's in place due to shelter in place, due to uh, social events being closed down and such. You know, just speaking from my own personal experience, I've struggled with depression most of my life. Most of my, basically from uh, young, early teens through today, I've suffered from, de or struggled with depression. But during this COVID-19 sheltering, even though I'm still getting out there, I'm doing lots of rides, I'm seeing lots of people, the isolation from physical human contact, you know, I, I struggle every day. There's days that you know, I don't feel like even getting up and putting my pants on. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those days. And you talked briefly about the stigmatization there. And, you know, during this pandemic, a lot of us are dealing with this shit. And we need to blow away some of the stigma because it's not a deficiency in your character or personality. It's not a failure of yours. 
it's not being weaker or not as uh, capable of dealing with stuff. This is a human reaction and you're reacting that way because our brains are designed to react that way. Mm -hmm. It's not a makes me hesitant to even use the word illness right you know as like we were talking about at the beginning of this we we do struggle sometimes with the language making these episodes because some of the st stuff just doesn't fit but it's become such a cultural shorthand right. to you know but our brains are all operate differently mm -hmm. and you know, there's no shame in not being fully well all the time. Right. When you'd, you'd said how, and I agree, it's a collective worldwide trauma that we're all experiencing. But I'd even go further to say that we're all going through this trauma, but we each have our own individual traumas as well that negate how we respond to more trauma you know the things that you've experienced and the things that i've experienced are very different and will lead us to respond to things different ways and i think that i know from from my experience personally during this time like i mean luckily i really haven't been that isolated per se i mean more so than usual but even with that my i'm on edge all the time and even just the slightest mishap sends me into like a I mean honestly it sends me into like a spiral of just assuming the worst because we are all in this trauma response fight or flight deal right now mm -hmm. to where even just the way that we respond to things is so heavily based on the traumas we've experienced in the past and are experiencing now that it's just it's really hard to keep what you would call a level head about things. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I agree. I think it's really important. The only thing that's helped me is actually talking about it, you know, and, and having that conversation of this is how I'm feeling, this is why. Because if you don't, you're just going to hold it in. And, and like, we'd, like we'd said, there's a lot of people going through stuff right now. There are a lot of issues out there, and, and it's important to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Even if we can't be next to each other, uh, we've really got to try to keep that social connection open. Otherwise, I mean, I think regardless, we're going to see a really big increase of a lot of, you know, mental health-related illnesses and deaths from this, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a catch-22 of being yeah. isolated for our health is it doesn't necessarily help our health in all ways yeah. Um, but yeah I think it's just been it's it's been hard and like you said I, I don't think anyone should be expected to be on their highest happy level behavior yeah. at any time during this because it has been very rough for a lot of people yeah and you know we oftentimes I come on here and I'm like man I've got a really good idea of what I want to say for how we can fix these mm -hmm. things but this one I don't have a good silver bullet right. because everybody has their own individual mm -hmm. um, 
I do know that we need to build better communities with one another and yeah. that isn't some abstract thing or like a commune in the woods although that would probably help most people's right. Right. mental health but I'm referring to the communities that you're a part of building them better developing more loving and intimate relationships with your friends uh, something that I absolutely love about uh, having come into this group the first couple of times on like group chats and stuff at the Central Illinois BSA is I was oh I love you guys and then it'd be like okay well we'll, <laughs> we'll see you at the next meeting right. but, and now it's you know hey I love you man I love you too you know it's a pretty open and expressive mm -hmm. love between people yeah which is important it's important to feel loved it's important to feel accepted and cared for by your community mm -hmm. so. Yeah, because even on the opposite end, there's this weird stigma about being too open with people. You tell people you love them, and they're, like, uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you know? And it, it, even if they love you back, they're like, oh, well, that's being, that's too intimate. That's, mm -hmm. that's being too forward. And it's like, I mean, any of us could die any day. I would rather know that someone knew I loved them or vice versa and, and have that communicated than just hold it in. And I, I think we're pretty quick to tell each other what we don't like about each other or what we don't agree with to an extent. But, I mean, people don't like conflict. I don't either. But I think, yeah, in these communities of building loving, intimate connections, part of that is saying, hey, Hey, you look great today. Yeah. You know, just being nice to each other and saying, you know, I loved what you did with that art or whatever. Just something meaningful and something nice just to do nice things for each other. It makes that person feel better and it's going to make you feel better and make you feel closer to each other. So. For sure. Yeah. it's It's been rough. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I'll piggyback off of that, uh, just kind of briefly. You know, you were saying there's this perception of you don't want to be too open. I want to directly address the guys as I mm -hmm. typically do mm -hmm. on this podcast. But, uh, guys, we trigger warning real quick for very extreme violence. Uh, we, we kill ourselves at like, nearly four times the rate mm -hmm. of women and that doesn't come from an inherent mental health issue uh, that's it, not very good theory about it so where does it come from to tie into the last episode it, it comes from this toxic masculinity shit it comes from the fact that there are some men I know who have never told their sons that they love them because they don't want them growing up, quote, soft. Mm. Uh, which just breaks my heart. As a parent, I can't imagine right. not telling my kids all the time that I love them, mm -hmm. showering them with affection. But we've got to get to this point 
where we accept and acknowledge other emotions besides anger. Mm -hmm. Because we are complex critters. We're not, for all the differences between the genders, men and other genders aren't really that different. Not from a neurological standpoint and from a very limited physiological standpoint. So this idea that all we experience is aggression drive, sex drive, and pleasure drive, I'm not buying it. Right. So, you know, just speaking directly to the men, be open with your emotions, and get a therapist. Yeah. Like, yeah. everybody should have therapists. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't have to be a formal... We'll get into this in a little bit once we when we do resources, but it doesn't have to be the formal Freudian style. Right. You know, how is your relationship with your mother? Right. There's lots of different ways to get some therapy, including group online and other things. But you should be talking to somebody who's not in your direct life right. about your feelings, your emotions, your status, mm -hmm. because it allows an objective outsider to help you make your decisions correctly. And to piggyback on that, one thing that I think also stems at least to a lot of issues with mid-twenties internet culture rage kind of men, as you said, you have to have someone who's not in your direct circle because if you use your girlfriend as your therapist it's not going to work very well and it shouldn't be put on her you know and same women for men but I think specifically to that kind of subset of men who are more likely to kill themselves you can't rely so heavily for your mental well-being on someone so close to you because they have I mean, of course, they they care about you, but they have their own mental health to take care of, too. So I think it's really pertinent that these people seek professional help because if your girlfriend breaks up with you and she's also your therapist, it's going to be a lot more, mm -hmm. a lot more detrimental to you. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have somewhere else to go, it makes, it'll just make it a lot easier. Yeah. Not to mention if the person that you use as a therapist is in your peer group, which I should hope you only date in your peer group, but if they're in your peer group, they may learn facts about you which, or even just temporary emotions about you, which guide influence and perhaps misguide their judgments and mm -hmm. decisions with regard to you yeah. because I know look all of us have they're called emergent thoughts mm -hmm. they're the thoughts that you don't control they're the thoughts that just come to your head that are unbidden right. everybody occasionally has the thought about like well I'd, what if it happened if I just stuck my finger in the blender those sorts of thoughts don't need to be known by your peer group process them through somebody who's a professional who's not going to internalize them about themselves mm -hmm. or about you. Yeah. And you can move, you know, progress past that. But yeah. That's kind of all I wanted to say to men specifically. Get in touch with your emotions. They call it the feminine side. It's bullshit. 
get in touch with your emotions. Right. We've had emotions this whole time too. Right. And until you're in touch with those, you're gonna run around and you're gonna think you're angry all the time when in reality you might be sad, bro. We right. get sad. Yeah. You might feel lonesome or envious. Right. Like there's there's other options. Whole and there's path. better ways to handle those Amen. other options than than with anger. And to the women all I want are non male to the non male comrades I wanna just add to that encourage that behavior. There's there's a lot of women and non-male individuals who discourage that and they uphold I know we talked about this in the feminist episode but they uphold the patriarchal standard of men being the aggressive emotionless stoic you know oh he's he's you can't expect him to not be emotional it's fair for him to have feelings and it's fair for him to address those feelings to you and it's important that we encourage that behavior in the men in our lives and don't squander that because it only takes one time if someone comes to you and expresses emotion and you shut that down it's going to be damaging for a long time and that goes for men and women it's i mean it's something i've done i'm sure it's something you've done we get in the moment and if you shut people down when they are being vulnerable and open with you it's very detrimental to your relationships and it's not going to help with your mental health or theirs in the long run. So anyway, moving on from that, uh, again, very sensitive warning on this next um, topic we're gonna kind of discuss, which is suicide. You had mentioned that men are nearly four times more likely than non-male people to commit suicide or attempt suicide. And like we talked about that we really have to let people be in tune with their emotions. Um, but just to know, this is according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is the 10th leading death in the United States, which is pretty high up on ways that people are dying. I mean, that is just very upsetting um, and, and something that we absolutely have to work on. 48,344 people died by suicide in the year of 2018 alone. And that same year, 1.4 million people attempted suicide. And that's just what they have documentation of. So that is on average 132 suicides per day in 2018. 132 people choosing to end their lives because they did not see a way out. And I think that this is really just something that we have to focus on and really work on. Like you said, there's no magic bullet for this. Unfortunately, there's, there's no one cure fixes all because everyone is so different. But we really, 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 really as a culture have to focus more on allowing each other to just feel things and allowing each other to love each other. Because this whole me first, screw you, Darwinist society that we have of step on everybody else to get ahead, it is killing us. We are killing ourselves and each other because we are miserable. Absolutely miserable. And that is reflected in these numbers. 
And I myself have had, you know, pretty tumultuous mental health history at times. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. And especially in a time like now with COVID-19 and the uncertainty with the future and climate change and people being killed and every other bad thing that's happening, it is really hard to look to the future. But again, that's where your loving relationships come in and other people make it worth it. Don't place all of your worth on other people, but love and connection makes being alive worth it. There's a post I've seen go around that's particular about this. And it's a little poster that was up in a psychiatrist's office. Maybe you've seen it, but it talks about how some people say, oh, well, I can't imagine some being, somebody being that cowardly that they commit suicide. I hate that. And uh, Boaster's talking about that. I don't see how somebody like that's cowardly at all. Right. Somebody who's thinking about suicide, you might have nobody. But if you're saying, if you, you know, reach out, that tells me that you're looking for any excuse not to do this. Mm -hmm. You're not weak. Your poster goes on to talk about you're like a marine trapped behind enemy lines mm -hmm. in the middle of a jungle and you're half fucking sick and you're tired. Yeah. And I know you're tired. And I know you hurt. But you're still saying, look, I'll keep fighting, but somebody's got to give me a stick. I need something. Right. Help me here. Yeah. And so... You know, just to echo that, guys, I know it sucks. I, I'm fighting it, too. Fought with it most of my life after losing my wife. And I have seen lots of trauma. Uh, I deal pretty hard with the effects of that trauma. Mm -hmm. And I know you're struggling, but times get good as well, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. This, too, shall pass. And, you know, please reach out to somebody. Nobody thinks you're a coward. Those that might think you're a coward don't have a realistic appreciation for what it means. I agree that it's, it's not a sign of weakness at all. It's, it's a sign of, of strength and really versatility and courage to say, hey, I'm in a weak point, I need some help because I want to be here for when things get better. And they will, they will get better. So just to kind of wrap this up, especially on that note, um, I have a few resources here. Uh, of course, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. And they actually now also have a text line so that if you don't feel comfortable talking on the phone you can also text them which I think is an incredible resource especially for younger folks who might be in their parents house or something and can't talk on the phone and sometimes people just feel more comfortable communicating over text but you can text talk to 741-741 and that will basically set you up with the same people as the prevention hotline which is just an immeasurably incredible resource. Mm -hmm. um, and you had mentioned 
therapy, which obviously is the number one. I agree, everyone should be in therapy. We all have individual issues and we all should seek help to work through them. I also think mental health should be, well, included with healthcare and be completely free mm -hmm. and accessible to everyone. But that's of course another topic. So if you can't afford traditional therapy, there are options now for online counseling. One of the notable ones is called BetterHelp. And there's also another called eTherapy Pro where they're not free, but they are much more affordable to folks who can't afford traditional therapy. And you do, you get assigned a counselor based on some questions that they ask you. So it's not like you're just talking to random people every time. Um, I, from what I've seen, the price point is much more reasonable to where people can actually take advantage of these services. Don't let a cost concern drive you to end your life. Yeah. Your life is worth more than any amount of money. Yeah. And if that is what you need, reach out for help and you know, we'll we'll get you what you need. Yeah. Someone can pitch yeah. in to make sure that you are okay. And that goes back to that community building that you talked about earlier. It's just so important to have these connections. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think everybody can use therapy. I think people can be brought up to not the level of a therapist, but sort of the equivalent to a nurse. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they're with small amounts of training and empathy and helping people communicate their needs. Yeah. You, you know, I have, I personally have several people who I de-escalate pretty frequently. Um, I'm not a therapist. You know, there's not, there's things that I'm not capable of even beginning to address, but because I am down in the, the trenches of mental health, with everybody else and just have been down here for a while and learned a few things and and also I have a pretty good idea for getting people to the resources that they need to get to so you know read this goes back to again building community and develop not only your skills for helping folks express their emotions, helping folks feel loved and cared and communicated. Also acquire knowledge as to resources you can direct folks to. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just kind of to tie it all back to community again, which is my, I, I've drilled this in because this is really the critical key piece that's missing. We can deinstitutionalize all we want. We can, you know, could build all the hospitals that we want, but if we don't have a community built around taking care of one another, they could throw all the Thorazine pills and clonazepam and mm -hmm. they could throw all that and see what sticks, right. which I'm not detracting from that a lot of people get good use out of it. But without community, none of that matters. Right. And you're just kicking the can down.
I want to mention one more time that if you or someone you care about is having suicidal thoughts or any thoughts of self-harm or even just need someone to talk to, please utilize these services. Reach out to the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Again, 1-800-273-8255. We love you. There are other people around you that love you, even if sometimes it's hard to feel that love. You matter, and we want you here. We need you here, because we all can help lift each other up. And that, I think, not, as we said, it's, there's no silver bullet, but that's a good damn start, yep. is just taking care of each other. We keep us safe. We do. We do keep us safe. We keep us healthy, and we, we keep us happy. That's right. So... All right, guys, thanks for listening. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. We love you, and we will talk at you again soon. Be well, guys.